Well, thanks uh, very much for your welcome. It's a privilege to be invited to share some reflections. I want to share some missiological reflections on the homogeneous unit principle. Um, and in order to do that, let me tell you where I'm going. I want to start off by giving you a bit of the historical context and the background that led to the development of the HUP, uh, then to uh, tell you how that was originally articulated, and then move on to share some reflections. So we will get to the reflections, but there's some groundwork to do, first of all. So when we're talking about the homogeneous unit principle, the HUP, Obviously, we're talking about the American missiologist Donald McGavran. Uh, but in order to understand McGavran, you really need to know where he was coming from and what his primary influences were. And so McGavran was particularly influenced by uh, a British missionary called Roland Allen. Man many of you will have uh, read some of his stuff. So Allen was a British missionary in China from 1895 to 1903 not uh, a particularly extended length of time by the standards of the day. His time in China was brought to an end by premature, uh, by ill health. Um, but it would probably be fair to say that when Alan's health failed him and he had to go back to the UK, his mission leaders breathed a big sigh of relief because he was very critical of mission practices in China at the turn of the 20th century. He didn't like what Western mission looked like. And when he got back to the UK, what he did was to start to write seminal books that were so radical that during his lifetime, nobody took any notice of them whatsoever. So the first book was called Missionary Methods, Paul's or Ours. And then the second was spon the spontaneous expansion of the church and the causes that hinder it. So he was writing in the early years of the 20th century. Uh, Alan said about his own books, I don't think anyone will understand them until I've been dead 10 years. And he was right. So Alan's work started to receive attention much later. And that was around the time that McGavran was beginning his research. So Donald McGavran is the father of the church growth movement and is the man behind the homogeneous unit principle. McGavran was a third generation uh, American missionary in India. And just as an aside, uh, I was recently on a CMS uh, pastoral visit in Indonesia. I met Donald McGavran's grandson, who's now a fifth generation missionary. What an amazing, that is an amazing heritage of a Christ-serving, mission-hearted family that I give thanks to God for. One of the similarities between Roland Allen and Donald McGavran was their willingness to challenge the status quo in mission at the time. And both of them stepped outside of the operating structures uh, that basically were normative at the time and challenged what was considered nor normal practice. And while Alan was really a man before his time, McGavran um, changed the scene radically. The mission world was ready for the change that McGavran proposed. And the context that both men, that both Alan and McGavran were reacting against, was the mission station model of mission. So for Alan in China and for McGavran in India, 
mission for them at that time happened in mission stations. So this is a picture of a mission uh, station, a mission hospital station in rural Nepal. And uh, you can see along the, in the middle of the picture, along the kind of ridge, the crest of the hill, scattered houses that represent the homes of Nepali farmers. And down in this bottom uh, corner down here, the bottom left-hand corner of the picture, you can see a much larger collection of buildings. And that's the hospital, the office space, the homes where the missionaries lived, uh, probably a school and a classroom as well. A classic mission station. Now, in many parts of the world, that mission station would have been surrounded by a big wall that enclosed the compound. And the context that McGavran was reacting against was the mission station model. That's what he'd grown up with both as a missionary kid and as a missionary. And he had two, McGavran had two big problems with the mission station model. The first was about results. In terms of the results of seeing people come to faith in Christ, his experience was that the results were tiny, a tiny trickle of conversions. The second problem that probably explains the first is that the mission station model was basically extractionist, or at least it was extractionist as McGavran experienced it. What I mean by that is that local people essentially were extracted from their culture, from their family, from their context, in order to become Christians. So an extractionist model of mission says, to become a Christian, you've got to stop being like you, and you need to start being like me. That was the context that McGavran was grappling with. He was greatly helped by Alan's writing, which had really been grappling with the same issue. And McGavran's first uh, articulation of some of those issues came in a book published in 1957 called The Bridges of God. And that book owes a very substantial debt to Roland Allen. But McGavran's uh, magnum opus, if you like, published in 1970, was a key book called Understanding Church Growth. So let me move on to... Uh, just outline McGavran's argument as it develops through understanding church growth, and that'll lead us to the HUP. So McGavran's argument goes something like this. While lots of good things happen under the banner of mission, there is one thing that is fundamental and of a different essence. And that fundamental thing is the proclamation of the gospel so that people come to know Jesus and are gathered into churches. For McGavran, he figured that the growth of the church is a fundamental and non-negotiable purpose of mission. So lots of stuff happens under the banner of mission. Hospitals and schools and lots of stuff happens. But McGavran wanted to put the growth of the church 
back at the center of what mission is about. So I think uh, McGavran would have been pretty happy to echo Broughton Knox's epithet, the church doesn't have a mission, the church is the mission. McGavran saw the growth of the church as the key outcome or consequence of mission. And therefore the growth of the church should be of the fundamental concern for those who are interested in mission. Where did he then go with that? McGavran then went on to say that if what we're interested in is in the growth of the church, then we shouldn't be ashamed to measure it. And McGavran brought the whole world of statistics and sociological research to the study of church growth. He argued that we benefit a great deal from studying growth trends, and he suggested that our outreach will be greatly helped if we take notice of the trends that we uncover. So the statistics that we have looked at this morning and yesterday, the fact that we're doing that, McGavran did that. He was the first guy to say, if we're interested in church growth, let's measure it and then respond to the trends. The National Church Life Survey in Australia is a consequence of McGavran's emphasis on research. And his own research was extensive as a sociological researcher. And as he started to do that research, he noticed that it was only really fair to compare contexts that are similar. So, for example, in Sydney, it wouldn't be valid to compare church growth in the Shire with church growth in Lakemba and Greenacre because they're not comparable contexts. So in his sociological research, McGavran started to argue that in our comparison, we need to only compare contexts that are homogeneous. McGavran then developed that idea of homogeneity to describe homogeneous units. What he meant by that was units or groups of people who share racial, cultural, or linguistic similarities. And he deliberately didn't try to tie that term down too tightly. So to some extent, what homogeneous means depends on the context that you're talking about. At one level, then, a homogeneous unit could be all Anglos in Australia. At another level, a homogeneous unit could be white-collar Anglo families earning over 80000 a year in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So what is homogeneous depends a, a, a little on what context you're looking at, and he was very comfortable with that. He didn't try and tie it down too tightly. So following me so far, the way the argument goes... The concept of homogeneity arose out of statistical and sociological research. And that led McGavran to what has been called the homogeneous unit principle. In reality, as McGavran described it, I don't think it was really a homogeneous unit principle. It was really a homogeneous unit observation. And here it is. 
this is the observation. Men like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. He was writing in 1970, so the language, language is not gender inclusive. Men like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Now, at one level, that observation seems to me is self-evident. I mean, the reality is men like to do most things without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Men like to eat ice cream without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. So what is significant is what McGavran then did with that observation. Having made the observation, he started to draw out some practical implications. So the homogeneous unit observation starts to become the homogeneous unit strategy. And he put the idea of homogeneous units to work in a number of ways. And he used the concept of the homogeneous unit to, to address a series of questions. What, who, where, and how? So first of all, what? McGavran argued that what missionaries ought to be doing is presenting the gospel to people so that they don't have to cross racial, linguistic, or class barriers. So stop extracting people from their communities. Stop bringing them into the mission station and speaking to them in English. Enable them to hear and respond to the gospel within their cultural context. And in many parts of the world, uh, including India, which was McGavran's uh, field of operation, that particularly meant presenting the gospel to people within groups. And McGavran was reacting to the individualism of Western Christianity and encouraging the mission world to start presenting the gospel to people in their groups, in family groups, in village groups, in those kinds of uh, contexts. And the other how is about language. McGavran was passionate that missionaries should present the gospel to people in their heart language. And that focus on heart language or mother tongue language is a critical emphasis of McGavran's work. How? Who? McGavran argued that the people who are most receptive to the gospel are the family and the friendship network of someone who's come to faith in Christ. So in your work within a homogeneous unit, where there are signs of faith and of God's spirit at work, McGavran argued that you should pursue those family networks right out to the margins. So if a woman professes faith in Christ, you should share the gospel with her husband and then her children and then her parents, and then her grandparents, and then her siblings, and her uncles, and her aunts, and her cousins. Pursue family networks, McGavran said, right out to the last 2%. The who then leads to the where. McGavran noted that some homogeneous units are more receptive to the gospel than others. There are times in the history of a people group when that people group seemed to be particularly open to the gospel. 
And McGavran argued, and he did it unashamedly, that missionaries should follow the Spirit of God to ripe harvest fields. Essentially, he said, don't waste your time on homogeneous units that are resistant to the gospel. Focus your resources on homogeneous units that are responsive, where the Spirit of God is clearly at work. The where then leads to the how. How are we going to reach the world for Christ? McGavran's answer was to focus on the people groups that are unreached and responsive. And he challenged the Protestant missionary world to set audacious, big picture goals that were all about planning to reach the unreached people groups of the world. And that message has sunk deep into the psyche of Protestant mission. Forty years after McGavran was first writing, uh, we gathered for the uh, third Lausanne conference at Cape Town in 2010. Uh, If you were there, one of the big moments of the conference was when we were challenged to sign up to take the gospel to the remaining unreached people groups comprising 50,000 people or more. That is McGavran language. That's where it came from. That essentially is McGavran's argument. So what's missing? What's missing, I think, is a theological justification of what has become the homogeneous unit principle. McGavran, at least in understanding church growth, didn't try to provide a theological platform on which to argue the HUP. There were subsequent attempts to provide a stronger theological rationale. Uh, In particular, an attempt to argue that in the Great Commission, Pantata Ethne to all the nations, the ethne should be understood as a homogeneous unit. I think that reads the homogeneous unit principle back into the Great Commission. And I think that uh, we should interpret the word ethne in the Great Commission in the way that the Old Testament primarily uses it. I think it's a very helpful thing not to think about nations as geographical nations, since most of those are the construct of Western colonialism anyhow. But in essence... The HUP was a sociological observation that became a pragmatic strategy. And notice what McGavran wasn't saying. He wasn't saying that the HUP was an adequate endpoint for churches, an adequate finishing point. The HUP was always a strategy for planting churches. And McGavran's expectation was that As churches were discipled and as they grew towards maturity, so they would embrace those who were different from themselves. Let me move on then to share some personal reflections on the HUP. My first reflection is around language. And simply to say, language is is very, very important. So remember uh, my summary of the HUP, McGavran's statement, 
Men like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. Stated like that, it makes it sound like those three things are equally significant. Race, language, and class. My view is that language is much more important than the other two. Because language is much more a fundamental uh, identification of what culture is. Language and culture are very nearly overlapped. So how do you understand another person's culture? Or one critical way is by speaking their language. I don't just mean English or Mandarin or whatever. I want to understand my children... I have to speak their language. They don't speak quite the same language as me, as uh, young adult teenagers. And I think that McGavran's focus on heart language is a key insight that we need to take away from the HUP. But I'm not sure that the HUP as it stands adequately explains why heart language is so important. The HUP simply states that people prefer to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers. I don't think this is just about preferences. I think that hearing the gospel in your heart language is important for two reasons. The first reason is to do with communication. So bear with me for a little brief summary of some communication theory. The process of understanding a message involves two different components. To understand a message, you need to appreciate the relevance of the message for you, and you need to be able to process what you've heard. And you'll understand a message if you uh, grasp its relevance and are able to process it, And there's a kind of balance between those two things of processing engagement and relevance. That sounds complicated. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you had accidentally wandered into a high-powered lecture about nuclear physics. Probably, you would zone out pretty quickly. However, if you were locked in a nuclear power station that was unstable the reactor was going to blow, and there was a video on YouTube about nuclear physics that maybe held the key to enabling you to get out of the place alive, you would invest a huge amount more in processing what you're hearing because it has a much higher relevance to you than if you've accidentally walked into the wrong lecture hall at the university. So what you're doing when you present the gospel to people in their heart language, as opposed to a second or third language, is radically pulling down the amount of processing power that they are having to use to understand what you're talking about. Therefore, you are making it very much more easy for them to appreciate the relevance of the message that you're sharing with them. Communicating the gospel in people's heart language makes it easier for them to respond to the gospel 
because of how communication works. The second reason why language is important is a theological reason. If you're a Muslim, you believe that God speaks Arabic. And you believe that Arabic is a divine language. If you're a Christian, you believe that God speaks every language. The Quran cannot be translated. The Bible can be translated. When we explain the gospel to people in their heart language, we are saying to them, our God speaks your language and you can know him for yourself. You don't have to become English to become a Christian. Second reflection, very briefly, is around method and missiology. The HUP demonstrates clearly one of the weaknesses of missiology as a discipline. Missiology, in my view, very valuably takes insights from anthropology and sociology. But it has tended to overplay those and uh, give them greater authority than they should have over against the word of God. What happened in the homogeneous unit principle was that a sociological observation became a pragmatic strategy that then had a theological justification pinned to it. And that methodology is inadequate. But that methodology continues to haunt missiology as a discipline. I could give you lots of examples of that, but time is running out. Third reflection, the context that we live in is not McGavran's context. McGavran himself said that he was not sure about the applicability of the HUP to cities. We live predominantly now in cities and in a globalized world. Does it remain a valid sociological uh, observation that people prefer not to cross racial, linguistic or class barriers? I think that observation needs to be retested. I think that in in inner city, multicultural Melbourne, actually people delight in engaging in rich cross-cultural experiences. Anglos don't go to Anglo restaurants to eat. They go to every other kind of restaurant to eat. My last reflection is about the gospel and ethnicity. While I think that there are some great and important insights that come out of the HUP, uh, perhaps my principal concern is that it doesn't take the issue of ethnicity seriously enough. And I'm not sure that it brings into sharp enough focus what the Bible has to say about how we find our identity. Remember Genesis 12, uh, verse 1. God says to Abraham, leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Now, for most people around the world, 
those three things are the three things that give you your identity. Your family, your father's house, your kindred, your tribe, and your land. A Kenyan friend introduces themselves to you. They will say, my name is Dominic Washira Minor, and I'm from Moranga. And what Dominic Washira Minor has just told you is his name, his father's name, his tribe, and his land. And for him, that is who he is, deeply rooted into his identity. Your land is where you belong. So in Kenya, you are always buried on your homeland. That's why it's so significant in Genesis, where bones are buried. Sarah is buried in Canaan. Joseph and Jacob are not buried in Egypt. Their bones are taken back to where they belong. But Abraham is called to leave the three things that give him his very identity, that define him. And he has given those three things back as a gift of grace, redefined by God. God is going to give him a new name. He's going to make him into the father of a new nation. And he's going to give him a new land. And every one of those things is a gift of grace. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a man or woman who finds your identity in Jesus. I think one of the risks of the HUP, particularly um, in the context that I'm used to, a context like Kenya, is that it risks not challenging the issue of tribalism enough. I wanted to say to my Kenyan students over and over again, you belong to the Jesus tribe. You owe far greater allegiance to someone from another ethnic group who is a Christian than someone from your own ethnic group who is not a Christian. And yet around the world, God's people are mired in tribal and ethnic conflict. Extraordinary revival in Rwanda and Burundi, followed by an appalling genocide. Kikuyu and Luo in Kenya. So the great challenge, I think, for us is to try to hold together these two tensions. On the one hand, the great insight of the HUP is that if we present people the gospel in their heart language, we are greatly facilitating their ability to respond to the gospel. And inevitably, that means outreach that is based around homogeneous units. Then we face the challenge recognizing that that is going to be how we operate. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. As we operate like that, how do we enable people to find their identity in Christ, transforming their ethnicity, so that they say, I belong to the Jesus tribe. My time's gone. We have maybe two, three minutes for questions. So you're calling people to Christ in their mother tongue, and then you're inviting them to have their primary allegiance to the new tribe. 
Um, talk, talk to us about the complexities of figuring out what things in their culture are okay to remain um, and they don't need to be reefed out from and, and what needs to change for this new allegiance. Well, welcome to the, the world of mission and what we struggle with constantly around issues of whatever you want to call it. Um, usually called contextualization, I prefer to call it translation. Um, first, less, f- first key thing I think I want to say on that issue is as someone from outside uh, a, a language group or an ethnic group or whatever, it isn't fundamentally my job to tell local Christian people what they should keep or not keep. My job is to keep bringing them back to Scripture, enable them to read Scripture for themselves and work out those, those issues uh, as they fall under God's Word and seek to bring their culture under the authority of the Word of God. But that whole process is, is very complex. And... Um, that's why missiologists write hundreds of reams about that whole subject of translation. Sorry. Um, in light of your first reflection, the importance, of, uh, the significance of speaking people's heart language, how important is it for us to... Um, to learn the language of the people groups that we're trying to reach out to? Well, I think we let ourselves off the hook on that much too easily. So I, I want to put the bar on language learning really high. I want to say, look at Ben Barsgate, who's been willing to go to the Middle East to learn Arabic for three years to prepare himself for ministry in Lakemba. But So I don't want to let us off the hook on that. And... As Anglos, we tend to think that it's, it's all just too hard and we can only learn English, but most people around the world, like I said earlier, learn another language. Having said that, I think that there are things that we can do in the way that we structure our ministry that take other languages seriously. So, for example, you might have many languages in your congregation. At the end of your sermon or your teaching or a Bible study group, You could ask people to split into mother tongue language groups and just explain what they have heard back to one another. A very simple little tool that you could use to enable people to do the transfer of what they've heard in a second language back into into their heart language. And that will help them to apply um, the message that they've heard. Very often in many languages, there is... um, that is a very, very difficult exercise because there won't be a word for propitiation or redemption or it might not mean quite the same thing. There, there's, there's a phrase or, or whatever. So just enabling people to do that transition for themselves within the way you structure ministry I think is a key thing around helping them to respond to the gospel. But again, if there is one language group in your, that you're trying to reach try and learn language. Yeah, you, you may have just sort of half answered my question, but I guess over the last couple of nights, a uh, couple of days, I've had this rising question. We seem to, you seem to be saying um, we need to get to them in our own language. So I, I sort of start hearing we need to copy their culture here, 
But then you're saying people need to join a new tribe, a new culture. So I'm a bit confused. Do we, do we want to reduplicate their culture and have uh, a congregation for each ethnic group in our community? Or do we want to bridge that gap and have a multicultural community that somehow connects with all these people? Yeah, how do we do that? I, I think this is complicated, and I think that what's, what people's heart language is, is going to change generationally. So a Chinese-born Chinese heart language will be Mandarin. Their children will probably uh, think Mandarin for family issues and uh, think English for school-related issues. And their children, the grandchildren, will probably start operating more and more in English, and their children, their heart language will be in English. So across a series of generations, you're going to have a, a changing reality about what heart language looks like. So this is always going to be a question that we have to keep coming back to and keep chewing over. Um, I want to encourage us to resist the um, non-Christian Australian cultural attitude, which is they've chosen to come here they have to be like us. They should suck it up and speak English. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous, but for Christians, I hope we think that's ridiculous as Christians, but actually that attitude is everywhere in our Anglo churches. And so um, being willing to do the hard things around language, around how we structure our ministries in order to enable people to hear and respond to the gospel, that's what I care about not about anything else. Sorry, David, this might be similar in some ways to the previous question, but help me think through the transitions. So HUP is very effective for evangelism, reaching out, but we don't want to leave it there because we want to help people come into a culture where they see, actually, that's not my identity, my true identity is in Christ. And so we're moving to them to a different place. How does that work in the transition process if the new place that we come to now is no longer as effective in the outreach that we were trying to do, which is why we went with the HUP in the first place. Mm. So I think, I think theologically the answer to that question is we do it by discipling people and teaching them the Bible. I think sociologically, um, missiologists looking at that very issue go, we're really bad at that. And one of the reasons that the missiology world has reacted a bit against the HUP, it's kind of not the flavour of the month, is because HUP churches aren't very good at becoming inclusive and heterogeneous. And so people are kind of struggling with that whole issue and going... Um, uh, so, I mean, in, in the wider missiological world, HUP is a bit um, not really the flavour of the month um, in some circles because of exactly that issue. But the risk then is that we don't value language and the whole issue around how we make it most straightforward for people to hear and respond to the gospel and to follow Jesus Christ. So, I mean, I think the theological answer is as we teach people God's word um, and disciple them, then under God that will happen. Uh, but it's a slow process. And some of these things are very deeply rooted.